You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Welcome to part two of this interview with Lee John. If you listen to part one of this podcast, you'll know about Lee's route to success in the band Imagination and the history of his diverse influences. In this part two, we'll talk about a film project called Flashback, which documents the history of British black music. But first, a little reminder of Lee John's route to his first appearance on the British TV show Top of the Pops way back in 1981. You've got three minutes on TV. You've really got to push it. You've got to let people remember you. You can't be the four tops or, you know, those groups that just stand and do nothing. People have to be talking about you the next day. One of the most uh, remarkable things is that, and what you're saying is that that moment, because it was so exciting in lots of different ways from this visual mm. you know amazing look which you all had to to the music and to mm. also you know the, the type of song it was was so original it just felt so original at that time and um and i think it was that that combination was what exploded you in mm. in, in terms of that moment of success how did that moment of success change your life and was it everything that everyone dreams of because a lot of artists go you know when i'm famous my life's going to be okay mm, mm, mm. was it that or is it more complicated ah oh, it's a bit of both because you know we still you know like um and someone was telling me about this the other day they were saying okay you know we were broke we didn't have any money da 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 and I, at this point in time, I was surviving because, you know, I literally was in three or four bands. So even though I did Top of the Pop, I always had this realistic thing that how am I going to maintain, how am I going to keep myself together to the point where even though we'd done it, because, you know, the next day and everything, you know, I was thinking, well, I may have to go back and sign on the dole, you know, because I hadn't signed on the dole throughout my, my period of, 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 of grafting. Only six months prior to that, a friend of mine said, why don't you sign on the dole? You can get some money. And I thought, oh, really? <laughs> you know, I said, because you're not earning. And um, the record company said, no, no, no. So we need to put you on a, 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 a wage or whatever like that. So you, you, can, you know, can keep things going. But the life changed. It, it changed to a, a level where from 1981 till 1989, I'd even say, it was work nonstop. It was work. It was really, it was like, it was all about the work. It, didn't all, it was work, 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 and, and writing and creating. And um, at that point in time, if you were in the newspapers, you sold records. So, you know, they'd put ridiculous things in the, in the newspapers and stuff. And that was basically to sell records. Um, and even if you didn't want to do it, you'd have a press person or somebody who'd make something up or whatever to sell records. I mean, now it doesn't make any difference, but that was what was part of the, the game. And also um, we became pillars in the community because there was all of a sudden, everybody thought we were American to start with. Then gradually throughout, as the year was ending, we had our third hit single flashback. Everyone's thinking they're from the UK. And then that's when the, 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 the press starts saying, oh, you know, they're very camp, they're very this, they're the other. You know, the media, they, they want to try and pull, pull you down. While if they see Funkadelic or Parliament or even Earth on the Fire, they're not going to say the same situation. 
while we then started to do shows with Earth, Wind & Fire and Kuluna Gang, who were, you know, saying, bigging us up and saying, wow, you know, like, you guys are really hot. We love what you do, blah, 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 blah. And they were from America. While in the UK, the media, not the audience, which is a different situation, the media starts to write, and they do that with everyone. They do that with every, you're, you're you know, having it for a while. It's, it's an English situation. They, they, they want to put you down, but then they still want to own you if you're doing well elsewhere. Yeah. And um, I didn't really dance the tune of what they wanted me to do. I was always rebelling. I was always, rebe- you know, with the record company, I was rebelling. I just thought we didn't have enough budget, you know, and we didn't. We didn't have the budget that we should have had for certain things. Um, and it was a fight, um, you know, and I would say, why are you guys so cheap? And they hated me saying that. You're so cheap. We should be getting, you know, we've, we've done this, we've done that, we've done this, you know, because build, build, they'll build you up in one set, sense, but then they're trying to pull you down in another. So um, it was a lot of life lessons, a lot of life lessons, but I didn't leave the situation with bitterness. I came in with what I left in, which was the talent God gave me, and also be able to still continue doing what I wanted to do, which some people unfortunately didn't. I didn't get into the drug scene. I wasn't into that kind of situation. We'd go out and get pissed and get drunk at the limelight later on in you know, the clubs, but we were not, I didn't come from that body of people who, you know, they always had my back. They we weren't into like, oh, let's should we get out of it? And, you know, plus in the early, early 70s, when I was a kid and I'd seen things like Lady Sings the Blues, I started to read all these biographies of all these different artists, especially and these are black artists, and how a lot of them had descended. And and it stayed in my mind. It stayed in my mind. I said, I don't want to end up like that, you know. And I'd say, if, if I got pissed or something one night, I'd say, oh my God, I'm having a Billy Holiday moment or something. You know, this is, no, we, this can't be like that. You know, I've got to make sure the next day I'm together, you know. So I always had this little third eye speaking to me, you know, and stuff like that. Okay, the 70s and 80s were shit. If you were black, if you were gay, if you were a woman, <laughs> you know, there was misogyny, <laughs> there was racism, there was homophobia, it was everywhere. You know what mm. I mean? Mm, now, mm. I don't want to compare myself as a, uh, as a white gay man to mm, a black man, mm. because there isn't a comparison, but there is a comparison in one sense, I think. And that mm. is that um, I felt very outside the society when I was growing mm. up because, because of my sexuality, that I wasn't mm. part of the mainstream. And I didn't have those symbols that you were saying as well. I didn't have that mm. mirror. And if the mirrors that I had were like these, those old very camp queenie comedians that I didn't see myself as, you know, <laughs> exactly, way, yeah. but it's not, you know, what I was sort of thing or what I felt I was. And so I think when I, on a, when, and when I started with MTV, MTV said, we need to talk about whether you can be gay, mm. <laughs> you know, and this is MTV in 1987. Yeah. And yeah. the whole of the eighties was a bit shit in that way. And I remember having a, a black boyfriend and we could never get a cab if we stood together. So we used mm. to have this technique where he'd hide around the corner and I'd get a taxi. So we mm. get, and mm. that's when mm. I thought, shit, you know, I thought it was it hard to be gay. It but wouldn't it stop. A it lot harder to be black. I mean, and, and I think, you know, what you had to go through and achieve must have been an immense drive and a responsibility in a way. You feel totally, totally. I, th- I tell you, um, one of the things I was talking to my mate Leroy Logan, who's um, um, 
portrayed in the Steve McQueen small act series and Tyrone Huntley portrays me, which is interesting, which is really, I, I didn't think that anyone, I reached this age where someone's actually portraying me, which was uh, a, a thrill. But I was talking, we were talking and said, don't you remember those days when the Black Mariah would be driving down the road and they would stop you and s stop and search? Now, I used to be doing those gigs in Brixton and I'd come on the Victoria Line to, to Stroud Green Road at Thinsbury Park, get out, walk up and be stopped seven, eight, nine times to the point where they knew where they knew it was me. I was him again because he has this little plastic bag. And I, I, I remember I had this plastic bag was, which said P.A.K. Butchers, Pack Butchers. And I had this cassette tape always in of all my tapes and my music sheets and everything. And they said, I was him again. All right, get in. And they take me home to the top of the end of my road. But then there were other times when I had to dodge in and out of streets. If you saw them, you, you hid and then you moved out. And it was like, you, it was a fear because you thought, oh, my God, they'll stop me, that, you know, throw me in, the, in the, wherever. So you had that. Then you had a situation is like when we were going out to the club scenes um, and like my mate Leroy was driving, we'd get stopped or we'd be watching to make sure police is going past us. But they would just stop us. You know, um, is and it wider racism that that music of that era, and this is what you're doing with with flashback the movie. Mm, you know, the, yeah, the music yeah. of that era uh, wasn't wasn't at the time given enough respect and no. airtime no. because no. it was black music. And yeah, that we had to fight. actually, we had to fight. Of, you know, I can imagine one of the reasons that you want to do this documentary is is to say, hang on a minute, I, this is, you know, like when people, they talk about today, oh, you know, if you're gay, you want to rewrite history. If you're black, you want to rewrite history. No, we want to tell the stories that were real and they well, should be told. Do you know well, what I, I, mean? I, I I'm I didn't even need the BLM or any other group to rewrite this. I've been working on this for over a decade. So the situation, I started this in, in, in um, 20, whatever it was. And... Um, it was initially my co-producer, who's French, was wanted to do an imagination documentary. And I, I was kind of like ooing and ahhing. And I thought, OK, let's try it. But I want to co-produce it and direct it and be part of the whole thing. So we said, yes, whatever you want. So we worked out a deal. And then I started to interview people. And then I, said, and then I stopped and I said, let me get somebody else to do the interviews to start with. So we get a, a fresh outlook um so we interviewed a few different people blah, blah 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 and then i started to listen to, and when i was in the studio listen to all these different stories and i thought this is bigger than imagination this is more this i said some of these stories will never ever be told or you no one will ever get to hear it if we don't widen this whole situation here and let people know where it comes from where it happens and but also in a positive note not in a negative note so then I said, right, let's change the whole thing. I want to do it about black music, black, uh, British black music. And um, my co-producer was like, oh, okay. It's a, you know, okay, cool. So he thought, oh, we just do a little bit of the 60s, the 70s, the 80s. And that's what everybody thought. But in my mind, I thought, no, we have to reach back and we have to reach forward. And somebody said to me, uh, a director, and producer said to me, it's going to take you eight, nine years. And I said, no, you're joking. No, no, no. He said, it will. He said, there's, there's all these different hurdles that you have to get through. And, um, and then you're going to stop. And then you're going to re start again. 
And then, um, and he was right because trying to get certain interviews with certain artists, they weren't always available. Um, some people had success and then they didn't have success anymore. So all of a sudden they wanted to do an interview with you. Um, what what were the surprising funny. stories that you were told, things that shocked you? Could you give me one example of something where you just went, oh my God, you know, that's, that's amazing. It wasn't, it was, it wasn't really that it was shocking because I, I knew I've, I've, I've been on the road all my life. So, you know, since a kid. So it wasn't, I couldn't really say that anything was so shocking. What, there were wonderful stories, you know. I mean, Elaine Del Mar, who's a jazz singer, whose father um, was working with um, Snake Hicks Johnson in the 1930s and 40s. Um, you know, he basically um, survived a bombing. The whole band he was in all died except him. And that was Café de Paris. So Snape Hick Johnson's died, everybody else died, but he survived it and uh, then formed his own band. Uh, and uh, she told me some wonderful stories. So those are interesting. Lavi Sifri, who never does interviews, um, uh, extraordinary um, musician and, and, and person. Eddie Grant, who I interviewed, who I knew as a kid, you know, um, he told me they made it in Germany first because there was the outlet you know, when they were in the, when he was in the Eagles of Baby Come Back, before it came, you know, before it actually come out, came, um, became a hit over in the UK, Britain following yet again. You know, it's, it's, there were so many stories. Of, I mean, I've interviewed people from sound systems to DJs, pirate radio, people of, um, um, from the classical field. We've got, that's where, how far I went back to the early days of classical music. Um, Nadine, Nadine, Nadine Thompson, Thompson, I think. Uh, no, Shirley Thompson is a classical conductor, a female black conductor who's done some fantastic arrangements. Um, and she introduced me to a world I didn't even realize existed of classical black composers, uh, which we've now put in the, in the documentary. Um, to the point where, you know, we, we, we got into grime and dubstep, which is uh, all the derivative of, of reggae and of the UK reggae scene of Lovers Rock. But then also we have the Brit funk scene and the club scene. And then, you know, we had the acid scene, you know, the house scene. Um, there's so many, you know, the acid jazz people, you know, I interviewed. I literally went through that period of talking about Norm Ski when he had his show because it was derived from, they saw MTV and thought, wow, we, we have to change our, our look on TV to interviewing one of the Cleopatra's first black young group to have a, a cartoony sort of show. Um, so I've had some extremely diverse people and um, we're nearly to the point of now finishing it. Um, but it's, it's interesting because you talk about this and, it, and it's, an, it's again the expansion of musical horizons, isn't totally. it? I mean, you're going it's almost like your very young youth in New York. It's, yeah. it's again, you're suddenly, dis it's, well, let's say rediscovering. You've probably known most of it, but you're rediscovering and maybe discovering something new there as well. Is it, mm -hmm. has it always, has it helped you, led you to new musical styles that you want to experiment in yourself? Oh, because yes. I know like you've done a, this jazz album, your, your voice is so beautiful on that album. I mean, it's just fantastic. <laughs> Um, I'm proud of that album. I'm very, very, I'm more proud of that album than I am of the Imagination albums because um, one, I had control 
not saying I didn't have control with Imagination albums. I did because I was writing all of the all of the, the songs uh, along with Steve and Tony. But with this album, it was like jumping into the pool. And Stefan Parolo, who is um, my co-producer of the making of DVD, because he said, Ali, if you want to do this album, you have to do a DVD, a making of, because this is going to be the future. I said, no, what, what making of? This was like 2004. And he says, yes, check this out. And he so showed me, because in France, where I'm very huge, and France has led me to Africa, South America. France is a huge territory. It's much bigger than the UK. And there's a lot of diversity and, I, and creativity. And I found that you, I can do so many different things. So when I come back here, I'm kind of like a snob in the UK because I'm kind of like, well, you know, I'm like, I've got a song coming out with Passive Bertrand in Belgium soon. I've got a track with uh, Jorge Vasilo from Brazil in the end of the year. I've just done the Gorillas. So I've, you know, it, it, but it's because I've done other things that are accessible. And like Damon, he loves some of the stuff I did in France. So, and he knows it because he hears me here. They play me every day. But when I did the jazz album, it was like um, I was going to jump into the ocean from a high cliff. And what I had to do <clears throat> was go back to that little boy in 1974 was listening to Lady Sings the Blues and Ella Fitzgerald and Sarah Vaughan's album where she sang My Funny Valentine. And then I thought, let me rediscover all of this. How can I do this? So I watched, um, there's a video, Story of Jazz. It was a box set. And I just, it engulfed everything. Um, and it, it started with, you know, Bessie Smith and Robert um, Johnson and up to the day, up up to the the, the bebop area, to 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 Miles Davis, to Herbie, all the way up to um, to today. And I just listened to it and threw it all away. And they said, right now, what do you want to do? It was very hard because there were some agents that thought, well, you know, I'll book you as imagination, but I'm not sure I'm going to book you as jazz. Then I had other people said, well, I'm going to take you on. You know, I love what you're doing. Come on. And I developed a completely new audience um, who now weren't probably into imagination, but they're now into me doing the jazz. So now when I do my shows, I get both because I can merge the two. But it was a, it was a fight and a, and a battle. And it, it, it's a situation of why can't I be diverse and do different things? And then this is the same situation when I in, was interviewing different artists, the same thing they went through. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. The problem we have in Flashback, there's so much stuff that you can only talk of a genre and pick one person from that genre and then move on. Otherwise, you're there for 18 hours. So, you know, so in, in doing that and then also um, having the experience of filming myself for the jazz album, it gave me... All of a sudden, I became a film director, and then I went on to do, um, I did three documentaries for SOS Children, one in Zambia, one in Tunisia, one in um, South Africa. You also uh, released a book, didn't you? With, 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 I did, I did. I did. I haven't got it in yet. I did. I've ordered it. It hasn't come yet from Within the Heart. <laughs> within the Heart. Thank you. Thank you. All the money goes to the charity. All the money goes to charity. You know, let me know. Email what me. What does it give you? Know. What does it give you doing something for charity? Do you know what I mean? Because there's always there's. Mm -hmm. I don't mean you. You don't 
do that to get something. But mm. whenever you do something which is, you know, of value to other people, mm. there's mm. something, you get a sort of payback, don't you? So I just wonder what... Well, what you, could, could, you know, the world is funny how we are born. And I, the first thing I thought, I could be in that person's place. It could be me there. Could you imagine? It could be me there suffering, having that suffering. So why wouldn't I? That's the first thing I think. I, you know. And the second thing is I, I always think I've been blessed and gifted that I can travel and through the music it's brought me to help these people. So it's, and it's easy for me to do. It's not a problem to do it. So I think if I get the opportunity and the chance, I jump on it. And my career hasn't just been ups and downs and ooh, and music and lights. There's been tips, you know, there's been my manager died in the early 90s, which was very devastating. Um, and uh, the other people that were part of my, my, my life passed away as well. When we were, um, and actually when I was speaking to Leon yesterday, my friend Leon, who was doing his thing about the dancing, it, it was a fight. It was always a fight. Even when we were doing TV, promoting, people, we made it look like it was fun, it was love, we were having a great time. But... I was watching um, live at Dominion. You can go on YouTube. It's going to be there for a while. It's going to go. And our first live tour, we sold out seven nights. And actually, we got an award. So we're there seven nights, um, eight shows at the Dominion Theatre in London. No British black band had done anything like that. None. Even today, I don't even I don't see anyone like that. You know. But no one knew, no one made anything about it. It was like, oh, okay. But it was a big deal. And we did it twice. And um, I was watching the performance because a keyboard player the other day was saying he hadn't seen it. I said, oh, go online, da, da, da. So I said, you know what? I'm going to watch this because we're doing a 40th anniversary album, which is coming out next year. It's going to be like uh, 14 albums, three or four of them with unreleased stuff, some live stuff some rule, it's going to be really, really cool, and some shows that we're going to put in. And um, so I was listening to all these different tracks and stuff I hadn't listened to for years. So as I was doing this, I just clicked on to YouTube to watch this Dominion Theatre and watch myself. And then I was surprised that myself, seeing myself there, I thought, oh my God, wow. And I, then I was speaking to Mel Gaynor from Simple Minds, who's been drumming for us for a long time. And he said to me, you know, I loved it. I loved that show, Liam. And I, I said to him, I was so serious. I was very serious. I had to get it right. Even I'm singing the sexy songs, and the, I was all the way through. I'm serious. I'm laughing at a few little bits and pieces, but because I knew the camera was there and everything, I had to be serious. I had to be strong. I had to be tough. I had to be on it. And, um, and then I watched another episode which is completely different, uh, maybe a year later. We're in Los Angeles, and we're on so the, 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 the program called Soul Train, which is presented by Don Cornelius. And Marvin Gaye was on the same show. And basically, Don Cornelius says something like, this is the man that gives, this is the group that Marvin Gaye gives his stamp of approval. And I thought, wow. And then when I watched my performance we did changes and we did just an illusion and when when i'm watching my performance my shoulders are out here and i'm like on your march get set go bam there again that face is serious is strong and by the time we finish the routine i'm like out of breath but it's so serious and it's so strong i thought you know 
that's probably how I look back at myself. I think, you know, you, you had a lot on your shoulders. You had to really maintain. So you could, even though it looked like we're joking and having fun, we were and having fun and laughing and stuff. It was serious. It was, very, it was always like, it was work. It was like, get it right, make sure you're on point. And that's what I see in the Dominion. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It was like, it wasn't, I mean, well, I just finally like to say, because I think what's really fascinating is that you've, you've, you had sort of one massive career that opened into so many. Mm. Um, and it opened up so many uh, avenues in your in your life. And I think that's really fascinating. You're not someone who's like looking back at a high point and that was it. You're someone oh, who's had the high point and it's carried on in different ways. Oh, because God. the most important thing as a human is to keep developing and creating. And that's what you've done. And it I really is. appreciate it. It is. I mean, so yeah, you. I had, thank you. I mean, I've had some really good high points. And you know, I still get excited. You know, the gorillas you know, has a, was a number one on iTunes, the track I did, The Lost Chord. Um, in every decade, I've always had something. You know, I had number two in, in the 90s with The Mighty Power of Love. That was with Mood to Swing, with I introduced. We had a number one with Instinctual, which introduced David Morales. Um, I did something with, um, and what's the name again, DJ Fantasy, which was uh, Mind, Body and Soul, big UK garage record. Then, um, they're always something, the DJs always love me. They always want me to do something. So it's fun and it re-innovates. So I think in doing that, so I, I, it's, it's fun to do it as long as you enjoy it. And as long as there's a little bit of melody going on with the beats, then I'm happy, you know. And that's it for the second part of this podcast with Lee John. I hope you enjoyed it. And look out for more History Makers on Pop the History Makers with me, Steve Blame. See you then. Thank <laughs> you.